So tonight, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation 5. And just by way of quick, quick review, at the beginning of chapter 4, John was raptured up into heaven and began to describe the things he saw. And uh, that takes us into chapter 5, where he sees something in the Father's right hand. The Father, he's been focusing on the throne of God the Father. And he sees something in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, verse 1. A scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. John says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the, all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp a golden and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so the church in heaven, represented by the 24 elders, is seen in heaven singing about the blood of Christ that has redeemed us. We'll be there, okay? Uh, I like what J. Vernon McGee said, an old commentator with the Lord now. He said, they sing of his blood in heaven. Down here, many denominational churches are taking out of their hymn books all references to his blood, but in heaven they will be put back in the hymn books. I guess that may be the reason the Lord isn't going to embarrass some of these folks by taking them to heaven because they would have to sing about the blood there, end quote. Well, verse 10, as the redeemed continue and have made us kings and priests to our God and we will reign on the earth. You know, guys, in the Old Testament, it was illegal against the law of God for a man to be both a king and a priest. You weren't to mix those offices. Was it Asa, I'm doing this from memory, who was king, and he decided he was going to go into the temple and burn incense to God, and the priest rushed in to get him out of there. He was very defiant, and all because he was king. And he apparently felt that, because I'm king, I can do whatever I want. And they tried to get him out as fast as they could, and then God struck him with leprosy, and it says he himself hastened to leave and he was a leper for the rest of his life. When God says something, he means it. He means what he says and says what he means. And God had forbidden those two offices to be joined. And yet in the um, millennial kingdom, we will be both 
priests and kings of our God. What does that mean? Well, we'll be priests in the sense that we will be no doubt leading people in worship all over the world. We'll talk about that more in a second because we will reign with Jesus. But the priests in the old covenant days, uh, they were the go-betweens between God and the people because the people weren't worthy to come to God directly. That all changed with Christ dying on the cross. Remember God tore open the veil that separated the, the uh, holy place from the holy of holies? It was God's way of saying, you don't need a priesthood anymore. You are worthy because of my son's death and blood shed for you. So you can come directly. So we'll be encouraging people uh, to get saved during the millennial kingdom because not everybody uh, is going to be saved. We'll be witnessing. Of course, all of us who are living now and are taken in the rapture, get our glorified bodies, we're going to be saved for eternity. But uh, you know how the millennial kingdom is. A lot of people will enter who aren't born again. Um, excuse me. Everyone who enters will be saved, but they will have their physical bodies and be able to marry and have children during this thousand-year period. And those kids are going to have to, when they grow up, accept Christ. So we'll be facilitating people coming to Christ, and we'll also be reigning. We'll also be reigning. Very important that we understand that, that as believers during the millennial kingdom, we will reign with Jesus. You don't have to turn to these. The Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he, she, who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. 2 Timothy 2 uh, verse 12, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. A lot of Christians don't realize that how they live right now and the faithfulness with which they live for the Lord now will determine uh, how many cities in the millennial kingdom they will be ruling over. We know this from the parable of the ten minas in Luke 19. Remember, how Jesus gave the parable of a certain, um, uh, he, I forgot what he called this man, but he wasn't a king, but he was somebody important uh, that was going to go away and receive a kingdom. And before he left, he called all of his servants in and gave to each one a mina, which is a, a weight of uh, precious metal, whatever the metal was, silver, gold, whatever. But a mina was a, uh, a measure of money. And so he went to get the kingdom, got the kingdom, came back, called these servants in and said, okay, how well did you do with the money I gave you? First servant came and said, well, well, master, you gave me a mina and I've invested it well and here's 10 minas. Blessed are you, faithful servant, because you were faithful in a few things, you will be ruler over 10 cities. And the second guy brought his mina and he had invested wisely and made five in the Master said, you will be ruler over five cities. And the idea is Jesus was laying out for us, and of course we just read a couple of scriptures that reinforce that idea, that we're going to reign with him. He's going to be the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, ruling from Jerusalem over the whole earth. We will be under him in authority, of course, and we will be reigning over various regions all over the planet, which will be tropical, no harsh climactic conditions for a lot of reasons, okay? So uh, I've, I put in for Hawaii during the Millennial Kingdom, but the whole world is going to be like Hawaii, so I guess it's going to lose some of its charm. Uh, anyways, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, 
the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Now, John has been so focused on his vision of the throne of God, God the Father. Uh, as soon as he got raptured up into heaven, he immediately sees the throne of God, the emerald rainbow around the throne, and the, uh, the four living creatures praising God day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, of course, that's all he can see is God on his throne. And because of it, he hasn't really taken a good look around. And now it's starting to dawn on him as he looks around and sees angels in every direction as far as the eye can see. How many, you say? Well, John tells us 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Now, save yourself some time. Don't multiply 10,000 times 10,000 and add a bunch of thousands in a, an effort to figure out how many angels there are in heaven. The Greek is literally myriads times myriads. Now, a myriad does mean 10,000 in the Greek language, but it's also the highest number in the Greek language and is often used to represent, listen, an innumerable number. And that's kind of how I think uh, it's going to be in heaven. I mean, think of the stars in the universe. How many stars? They don't even know. Trillions. Um, I would have to imagine that heaven is not going to be less than that less spectacular. Angels are called stars, by the way, in Scripture in different places. And so I think that God has probably got trillions of angels in heaven. Trillions of angels. And John is first seeing. Can you imagine? Uh, John, as he's been so focused on, on the throne of God, all of a sudden he begins to look around. Whoa! There's angels everywhere, as far as the eye can see, in every direction. Verse 12 these angels were saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. One well-known pastor said this, and I quote, The spontaneous outburst of worship results from the realization that the long-anticipated defeat of sin, death, and Satan is about to be accomplished, and the Lord Jesus Christ will return to the earth in triumph and establish his glorious millennial kingdom. The curse will be reversed, the believing remnant of Israel will be saved, and the church will be honored, exalted, and granted the privilege of reigning with Christ. All of the pent-up anticipation of millennia finally bursts out at the prospect of what is about to take place. Place, end quote. Now you have to understand something. Ever since God created the world, the universe, the angels were made first. We know from Job, I think, 38, the sons of God, a reference to angels, they shouted for joy when God laid the foundations of the earth. So they were made first, and then God created the physical universe, right? And these angels saw in heaven that one of them, got lifted up, Lucifer, the most beautiful, intelligent angel that God had made. And God had put Lucifer, whose name means light bearer, over all the other angels of heaven. He was not only the worship leader of heaven, he was also the head angel over all the others. But he didn't want to be number two behind the Trinity. He wanted to be number one. He wanted to be like the Most High. And so he led this revolt in heaven. Revelation 12 tells us a third of the angels, a third of the stars, 
followed him in his rebellion. They became fallen angels. And then the faithful angels of God watched in horror as Satan came to the earth after God had made Adam and Eve, put him in this beautiful garden. And how Satan took the form of a serpent and he beguiled Eve and she ate of the forbidden fruit, gave to Adam and he did eat. And the angels of God were watching in horror as God's beautiful, sinless, perfect, pristine creation now had been corrupted with sin. And man himself had fallen, no longer uh, connected to God uh, in a way that he had been, where God communed with him every day. Him and he, uh, Adam and Eve, they communed with God face to face in the cool of the garden. Every day they had this incredible relationship with God. That was all gone now. It was severed. But in the garden, God made a promise that someday he would send through the seed of the woman a, a, a redeemer, a messiah, who would crush the serpent's head, break Satan's authority. Because now Satan was, as we have said, a man, uh, man's new master and, and the earth's new owner. He's the God of this world. And ever since that promise in the Garden of Eden, the angels of heaven have been waiting for this day to come. It's what Peter called the restoration of all things. Remember in the book of Acts? The restoration of all things. Everything that sin had corrupted. Everything that Satan, that Satan had done to uh, take glory from God by causing his creation to be tainted and corrupted and so on was about to be corrected. Uh, paradise lost was about to become paradise regained. And so you can imagine the anticipation, right? And we read this and we go, yeah, yeah, great. It's a great day. <laughs> you know, we're so clueless at times. You know, but these angels are going crazy with anticipation. They've waited a long time to see what is about to happen, okay? Keep that in mind, all right? Keep that in mind, things that are about to take place. Verse 13, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him, worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Now, is this language poetic? Possibly. I mean, in the Psalms, we read all over the place poetic language that personifies the creation. You know, the psalmist would say things like, The mountains shout for joy, and the trees clap their hands for towards God, the glory of God, and so on. You know, And so the, the creation is personified, right? It's poetic, though. We don't really see mountains singing and trees clapping their hands, right? You say, well, is that what's going on here? Probably, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. This is a unique time in the history of the, of the universe. And I wouldn't be surprised if the fish in the sea were singing God's praise. It was just everything in the sea. That pretty means everything, right? Pretty much. I mean, were the fish singing like one of the, what, uh, what's that Disney movie, uh, you know, uh, Little, Mermaid. Little Mermaid, where they're all singing, you know? I don't know. I don't know, maybe. Look, if you think that's kind of crazy to think about, remember on Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry when Jesus is working his way up the Mount of Olives and his disciples are going crazy because they thought he was going to bring the kingdom at that moment. And they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David. That's a messianic phrase 
you know, blessed is you comes in the name of the Lord and so on and so forth. And the Pharisees who were standing there were incensed. And they said, Rabbi, rebuke your servants. Tell them not to say that anymore because they didn't believe he was Messiah. What did Jesus say? I tell you a truth. If these would keep quiet, the very stones would cry out. Was that literal? I think it was. I wish, you know, our first trip to Israel, right? The bus stops in the Mount of Olives, right? And we get out, we're doing our thing. And all of a sudden, I'm over there picking up rocks, putting them in my backpack. And somebody said, what are you doing? I said, I'm picking up rocks. Why? Well, don't you get it? These are the rocks that would have cried out. If Jesus' disciples had been quiet, oh, man, everybody starts picking up rocks, you know? I think they would have started crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David, if the disciples had remained quiet. But here we see all of creation bursting out in praise, singing praise to our God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, J.B. Phillips, a great commentator, said with regard to this, and I quote, From every possible sphere and from every single tongue there rings out an acknowledgement at last that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will not be a single dissenting voice. The, the fallen angels, the angels imprisoned in the abyss, the angels bound near the Euphrates, the demon hordes, Satan himself, wicked Christ-rejecting sinners of earth, one and all acknowledge him as Lord. Deep in every heart, there, uh, deep in every heart will be the absolute conviction that the choice of Jesus is wise and just and blessed and honorable and glorious and irresistible. God has placed into the hands of men the decision as to whether or not they will accept Christ as Savior, but the decision as to whether or not they will acknowledge Him as Lord is not theirs to decide. End quote. The tragedy is that if you wait until you are forced to bow your knee to Jesus Christ and confess, confess that He is Lord of all, well, that will not be a confession unto salvation. That will be a confession unto damnation. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. The Bible makes that very clear. John says he is the propitiation for our sins. Not just for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. Everybody in the world can be saved. Jesus' blood is sufficient. Will everybody in the world be saved? Of course not. But it's not God's fault. When people want to blame God for sending people to hell, maybe you've heard this, how could a God of love send anyone to hell? Let me tell you this. Our God of love doesn't send anyone to hell. Men and women choose to go there. And I think it was Spurgeon who said, if you go to hell, it's because you have stepped over and trampled upon the bloody, sacrificed body of Jesus Christ who died to keep you from going to hell. But you know what? If you're that determined to go to hell, you'll, you'll make it. But it's not God's will. It's not God's desire. Someday every knee is going to bow. Someday every person that has ever lived, and I think that's what's in view when it says on the earth, under the earth, uh, everyone in the seas, probably the dead, uh, the, the living and the dead, whether they died on land or sea, 
everyone is going to be resurrected at some point, and those that rejected Christ in this life, they will bow the knee and confess him as Lord. But by then it will be too late. Too late. You don't want to wait until the day, until that day, the day of judgment, to make the confession that Jesus is. Do it now. Bow to him as your Lord and Savior now. How do I do that? Well, Romans 10, 9 and 10, very simple. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One pastor and author put it this way, said, and I quote, One day every knee shall bow. If you don't do it now, you'll do it later. Doing it now will bring you salvation. Waiting till later only is an acknowledging that the righteousness of God in bringing you damnation. So you need to think that one over because sooner or later you're going to do it. You're going to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Better sooner than later for sure, end quote. Well, the tragedy is, as we just said, that even though Jesus died, that all could be saved, most won't be saved. They won't bow the knee to Jesus as their Savior and King here on earth. Why? Well, I think Psalm 14, verse 1, gives us the answer. Why don't you turn there real quickly? You know it. Psalm 14, verse 1. Listen to how David starts that psalm. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. However, the Hebrew is literally, the fool has said in his heart, no God. No God. In other words, the psalmist might not have atheists in mind exclusively. There's certainly a lot of them around. He might also have in mind those who do believe in God, but refuse to bow to his authority over their lives. There's a lot of these folks running around as well. They've grown up in church, went to Sunday school when they were kids, maybe Awanas. They know the gospel. They believe Jesus is the Savior of the world, who died for their sins, third day rose from the day. They believe all that. Oh, by the way, Satan and his demons believe that too, because they were there to see it. They were there to see the incarnation. They were there to see Jesus grow and work miracles and eventually go to the cross and third day rise from the dead. So the information is important for being saved, but the information by itself won't save you. There has to be the bowing of your life to Jesus, the acknowledging you are my king and I want you to come into my heart and rule over my life. There's a lot of people that it's not that they're declaring themselves atheists who say God doesn't exist. Many of these people, no doubt, believe there is a God, but refuse to let him have control over their lives. 
I think God's word is telling us to beware of faith that stops short of being saving faith. Those who believe there is a God, but who say in their hearts, I don't want to bow the knee to your authority over my life. I want to be in control and do what I want to do. I don't want God messing with my life. I want to be my own master. We see the rebellious fallen heart of man portrayed in defiance against his creator's right to reign over our lives in William Henley's classic poem, Invictus. This, by the way, was what um, Timothy McVeigh recited before he was put to death for his part in the Oklahoma City bombing back in 95. Defiant till the end. Here's what Henley wrote many years ago. Out of the night that covers me black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning chance, my head is bloodied but unbowed. Here's a man who refuses to let God break him is the idea. He, he says, bring it on, God, if you're there. I'm not going to be broken. You can do whatever you take your best shot. I, my head might be bloodied, but it's unbowed. I refuse to acknowledge you. I refuse to receive you into my life. He goes on, beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. Death is coming, I don't care. And yet, but the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Of course, that last line there, right? You all know he's taking it from Scripture. It matters not how straight the gate. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14? But broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many go in by that gate. But straight is the gate. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Only a few find it. Yeah, I don't care how straight the gate is. I don't care less. I'm not looking to get into heaven. Nor I don't care how charged with punishments the scroll. What's he talking about? Well, Revelation 20, when the scrolls are open, the books, and everyone is judged according to their work, he's, I don't care. I, 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 I could care less. He cares now. That's the problem with defiant rebels. You know, that, that's the problem with, um, what's the, uh, oh my God, I keep forgetting his name. Uh, he was a... Um, Nobleman, um, but he was a militant atheist. You're going to have to help me out here. And uh, he, um, he he made fun out of Christians. This is going back into like 1700s, okay? Voltaire, thank you. Uh, I get a mental block with him sometimes. Voltaire, uh, who was a militant atheist. Not just an atheist, a militant atheist. He would go after Christians. He would make fun of them. He was a philosopher, a pretty smart guy. And he would make fun out of Christians, and he would mock them, and so on and so forth. And he just didn't believe in God, wasn't, didn't care about God, and so on. That is until he came to his deathbed. And he offered his doctor half of his wealth, pretty wealthy guy, if he could give him six more years of life. Excuse me. Uh, if, if he could give him, what was it now? Was it six more years? I think it was six more years of life. Of course, the doctor couldn't do that. His death began to close in on him, the darkness. He began to scream, scream, 
top of his lungs. More light! More light! His nurse came out one day, white as a sheet, vowing never, to, never again to attend the death of an atheist. Of course, these people live with a lot of bravado and, and just, you know, uh, all this uh, very cocky, arrogant, uh, the word is bravado, thank you. Uh, but, you know, they, 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 until they come to a point of death. Now, here's the good news. The thief on the cross came to the very moment of death and repented. God is gracious. If, if an atheist, a militant atheist on their deathbed has a change of heart and cries out to God in repentance, God will forgive them because our God is gracious. He's merciful. But a lot of them don't. Christopher Hitchens, famous atheist, right? Christians prayed when he got sick with cancer. Christians were praying for him. And they told him so. And he was touched because he it was always against Christians, Christianity. He was just like Voltaire, just ripping Christians apart. I think it did touch him when Christians said, we're praying for you. We're praying for you when he, he got sick. And um, we just want you to repent. We want you to be in heaven with us. He said, well, that's not going to happen, but thank you, you know. He didn't have to die and go to hell. He could have been saved. But um, people sometimes are defiant until the end. Defiant until the end. Look, God is saying that someday everyone will bow the knee to Jesus and confess that he is Lord. But those who wait until they stand before him on the day of judgment to do it, well, they'll be doing it right before they are cast forever into hell. Only those who bow the knee right now to Jesus as their Savior and Lord will do it to salvation and not to damnation. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. You might not get another day on this earth. And uh, use this one wisely. Repent. Receive Christ. Because if you die, you will stand before Jesus someday and bow the knee and confess he is Lord. But it will be moments before you are cast into hell forever. All right, you ready? We have now come to the moment. Most of you have been patiently waiting for, I checked my notes, 29 weeks in Revelation to get to this point. I hope it's been worth the wait. The place in the book of Revelation that most people often think of when the book is mentioned, chapters 6 through 19. And these chapters are recorded God pouring his wrath, his judgment, out upon this Christ-rejecting, rebellious world. This is going to be a worldwide judgment, like the judgment in Noah's day. Two worldwide judgments God is going to bring upon this world. He's, he's brought one in the days of Noah, the flood, and he's going to bring another in the future. I don't think in the very distant future, uh, a worldwide seven-year judgment that we call the tribulation period. Now guys, I will warn you as we enter into this section. I'll warn you that we are about to go through a deep, dark, depressing valley. We just talked about man being rebellious and defiant to the end. Do you know that millions upon millions of people are going to be saved during the tribulation period? That's good news. Billions more will not be. They will be defiant till the end. That's the tragedy. 
And that's why it's such a deep, dark, depressing valley because God is still reaching his arms out to the people of this world, pleading with them to be saved. He even sends an angel at one point to fly through the heavens declaring the gospel so that nobody can say, I never heard. But so many will still reject Christ. Tragic. I mean, just I'm just... I'm just warning you, giving you a little heads up. If you think the evening news is depressing, you ain't seen nothing yet. Okay? It's the idea. Guys, nothing this world has ever seen, nothing this world has ever read about, can prepare the people of this world for what is about to come upon this planet as recorded in Revelation 6 through 19. The good news for the people of God is that these judgments will be poured out upon the people of this world. Those the Bible refers to as the earth dwellers. The earth dwellers. These are those who have made this world their home. It's all they want. And as such, they want nothing to do with the God of the Bible. Again, they are militant God-haters who love pleasures fleshly, sensual pleasures rather than God. This, of course, is in contrast with the people of God living upon the earth right now who love him, right? Who keep his commandments. Those who are called in Scripture pilgrims and sojourners. There's the contrast. These are those who are passing through. This is not our home. This is not our home. More like uh, like a Christian and faithful in the book of um, Pilgrim's Progress. Passing through the world, Vanity Fair, but all the while had their sights set on the celestial city. This is who we are. Uh, the earth dwellers, this is their home. This is all they know. It's all they want. God, spiritual things, get out of here. Maybe spiritual things that are dark and demonic, they're drawn to. Not the things of the Holy Spirit. So that's the contrast the Holy Spirit paints, especially in the book of Revelation. You have God's people, pilgrims, sojourners that are passing through, and then you have the earth dwellers, those that he is going to pour most of his wrath out upon. And uh, to, to us, who are the church, the bride of Christ, Jesus made a promise. Remember we studied, turn back to chapter 3. To us are this, who are pilgrims and sojourners, the church, bride of Christ, Jesus made us a promise. He said in Revelation 3, verse 8, to the church of Philadelphia, which represents evangelical Christians, I'm convinced, the evangelical church, I know your works. See, I have set before you, listen, an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial. That's just not a literal hour. It's a period of time. From the period of time which shall come upon the whole world to test or to try those that dwell on the earth. He's talking, I believe, about the tribulation period. And how that his true church will not go through the tribulation period he has promised because we have been faithful, we love him. Uh, he's going to rapture us, evacuate us, what it is. The rapture is an evacuation of God's people off the earth before his judgment falls. And then we see in chapter 4, to open up that chapter, 
it opens up with these words, verse 1, After these things I looked, and behold, what? A door standing open in heaven. very door that he promised he would open as a way of escape for his people to be evacuated off the earth before his judgment falls. I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Now, we studied this in detail. You can go back and listen to the study if you haven't uh, weren't here that night. But then after this, in chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, we see the church in heaven standing around the throne of God, singing the song of the redeemed. Before, listen, before the first seal in chapter 6 is broken and the tribulation period begins on earth. We're in heaven, uh, safely ensconced in heaven before the tribulation period ever breaks out upon the earth. This tribulation that will come upon the whole world will escalate into great tribulation. Remember how Jesus likened it? We'll study that next week. Matthew 24, he likened this time to be like a woman in labor. And I've never experienced labor. I have to take my wife's... Of course, I was there with her so I can... You know some of what went on, um, but how you know, ladies giving birth, you know, you go into labor, and the pains are not real intense, and they're kind of spaced uh, farther apart. But the closer you get to the child's birth, the more intense the pain becomes. The closer the contractions get to one another until they're right one on top of each other. The pain is unbearable, and then the child is born, and there's peace. Pain is gone, and you have a new life that uh, you have brought into the world. Jesus said, that's going to be like the kingdom. The tribulation period is going to start off like a woman in travail. Uh, there will be judgments, but they will be not very intense and spaced out. Why does God space his judgments out in the beginning? To give people time to repent. So God brings a few judgments, backs off. Remember what, uh, was it Amos said? Lord, in judgment, remember mercy. And that's our God. That's our God. God only judges as a last resort. And even then, he will use judgments to get people's attention, those who are really dull of hearing because they're so entrenched in sin. Sometimes God is, you know, C.S. Lewis said, God whispers in our pleasure, shouts in our pain. Sometimes God will bring some judgments into a person's life because he loves them and wants to wake them up, shake them to their senses, that they would come to Christ, that he can save them. That's what he's doing in the first half of the tribulation period, primarily. Brings a few judgments, backs off. Gives people time to repent. Then a few more, backs off. Gives them time to repent. By the time you pass the midpoint, and you enter into the second half of the tribulation period, pretty much everybody who's going to get saved has gotten saved, and the world moves into what we would call hard labor. Great tribulation. And eventually the judgments of God are coming one after another in furious pace. The world looks like it's going to completely blow apart and be no more. And all of a sudden Jesus breaks through the clouds and the kingdom is birthed and there's peace. Incredible time. But just let me say it again. This tribulation will start out light but will gradually, es gradually escalate into great tribulation during the second half of the seven-year period, climaxing, guys, in cataclysmic judgments and upheavals 
that will be so horrific the human mind, as of right now at least, can't even comprehend them. The good news is that the church will have a balcony seat in heaven and not have to go through these judgments taking place upon the earth. And the reason is because the purpose of these judgments is to is punish the inhabitants of the earth for their rebellion. Now, many will get saved, but that's the, that's the main idea, right? Uh, remember in, in Egypt when God brought the ten plagues? When we studied those plagues and we studied Exodus, okay, um, we said that those ten plagues were, were poured out upon the gods of the Egyptians. Every one of them. And we talked about the various gods they worship, and so in, in these, this uh, judgment was, you know, uh, on these gods and or this god, you know, darkness, on the on their god Ra, the sun god, and it just all the way through. Of course, the firstborn of the pharaoh was considered a god, and so he was worshipped as god. So God was was judging the gods of Egypt. Egypt represents the world, right? It's the type of the world. What have people done today with the earth? They have turned it into what? A god. They call it Gaia, which is a female name for Mother Earth. Paul said it. They reject the creator and instead worship the creation. Man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Therefore God gave them over to this delusion. And eventually we'll bring judgment because God will not tolerate anyone or anything being worshipped above him. And if people want to really worship the creation, global warming. I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. I'm sorry I even brought it up. Um, a lot of that is just for power, power grab. Uh, so they can just enact all kinds of restrictions on everybody. But, but... But there are those who really believe it because they, they really worship the earth. And uh, they don't realize it, but they're, they're the ultimate earth dwellers who worship planet earth. So in the book of Revelation, God is going to destroy this idol. And how did God deal with blasphemers in the Old Testament? Through what? Stoning. At one point, God's going to stone the earth. Hailstones that weigh 100 pounds each. Are going to fall from space. People say, well, are they hot or cold? Does it really matter? <laughs> you got these things coming, 100 pounds apiece, flying out of the sky? I don't think it matters if they're hot or cold. But God's going to stone the earth because man has turned it into an object of worship. Okay? And um, But, but but getting back to my one thought, and we'll move into chapter 6. The reason uh, that the church will not be here for the, these cataclysmic judgments is because, again, they're poured out upon the rebellious. We're not rebellious. We love the Lord. We've given our hearts to Christ, right? And God has promised us in 2 Peter 2 that he will not punish or judge the righteous with the wicked. I look at that as a rapture verse. Some may not. I do. That God's going to evacuate his church off the earth before he, you know, brings judgment upon the wicked. All right. Uh, well, let me just say this. I was going to get into chapter 6. I think we're going to need to stop here. I'm sorry. I want to get a little farther. I always want to get farther. Um, 
but I want to, I don't want to rush this because uh, we're going to see now the judgments of God begin to be poured out upon the earth. And they're significant. And we need to really take our time looking at these. So uh, next week, God willing, we will actually get into chapter 6. And boy, there's a lot here. And I think you're going to really be uh, interested in what is happening. And we'll try to dovetail that with Daniel 9, which talks about the coming of the Antichrist. And so, so hang on to that. We'll get into it next week, God willing, as we start Revelation chapter 6. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And Lord, we just ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We want, Lord, to be um, aware of all that you've said to us in your word, things that are coming, that we prepare right now, that we are watchful and vigilant so that we don't fall asleep in the light and be caught off guard when you come, Lord Jesus, for your church. So we just thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.